Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. We just learned that Kevin Rashid Johnson was transferred to another prison, Sussex II, shortly after The Guardian published a piece he wrote on prison slavery. His supporters have made the following call. Kevin Rashid Johnson is once again under attack from the Virginia Department of Corrections. He was recently transferred with violent treatment to Sussex II Prison. He is having a medical episode and the prison is not giving adequate care. You may call Warden Beth Cable at 804-834-2678. That's 804-834-2678 if you want to suggest he receive medical care. We now share a letter from Keith Malik Washington, who writes us from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. Keith writes, Peace and blessings, sisters and brothers. Today is Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018. I woke up this morning and went to outside recreation. Before being escorted to rec, the officers came to my cell with a male sergeant named Espinoza. He had the video camcorder in his hand and I was asked to submit to a strip search. I complied. These strip searches are humiliating and degrading. TDCJ has me classified as a high-profile inmate, but no one here has actually told me why I've been placed on high-profile status. The only reasons I've been given is, quote, you have lawsuits, end quote. However, this supports my argument that the prison agency TDCJ has been retaliating against me for accessing the courts. Last year, I won a civil lawsuit when I challenged TDCJ's constitutional beard and religious headgear policy. While I was litigating this suit, I was not subjected to this humiliating treatment. So why now? Why the video camera? After my recreation time in a cement box cage, a female sergeant named Dorian Garza showed up with a camcorder. I asked to speak with her before I'm ordered to strip naked. I explained to her I'm a devout Muslim, and it goes against everything I believe for me to strip naked in front of a woman who is not my wife, but the extra indignity of stripping naked while she films me is more than I can bear. Sergeant Garza agrees. She orders her officers to strip me, and after they're done, she returns with the camcorder to film me. I'm taken to my cell in order to pick up my shower items. Towel, face cloth, soap, shampoo, and shower shoes. I tell Sergeant Garza that I'll be five minutes. However, I'm left in the shower for an hour. While in the shower, Lieutenant Javier Muro conducts a search of my cell. He takes my mostly state items, extra necessities. He leaves me with only one sheet, takes down my clothesline, no big deal. But there's an underlying issue here on this unit, and Lieutenant Javier Muro has established a pattern of attempting to harass and intimidate Muslim prisoners. Up to this point, I've been silent on this topic, just watching and waiting. Nevertheless, these ongoing strip searches, coupled with the fact that a Muslim I've known for 10 years reached out to me for help, has pushed me over the edge. I'm requesting an organized response here. I want at least 1,000 free world friends to contact Texas Senator Eddie Lucio Jr., TDCJ Executive Director Brian Collier, and Texas Representative James White and ask them specific questions, and this time, sisters and brothers, we must demand answers and solutions to these issues. Please, I really need your help on this. 1. 
why did TDCJ State Classification Committee member Kelly Enlow approve my release from ADSEG, yet I've been returned to ADSEG with no excuse? 2. What was the reason for dismissing me from the ADSEG transition program? 3. Upon arrival at the McConnell unit, why have I been classified as a high-profile inmate? What behavior or historical data is TDCJ using to justify the humiliating strip searches with a camcorder? 4. Does TDCJ train their officers to be tolerant and respectful of prisoners who practice Islam or follow the Judaic faith? Does the agency monitor instances of religious discrimination and harassment of the prisoners? Sisters and brothers, I've never ever been the boy who cried wolf. I'm known throughout the nation and even in some parts of Europe as being a truthful and respected authority on the conditions inside Texas prisons. There is a Muslim here on the McConnell unit named Forry Gamble, TDC number 1426500. His Muslim name is Abdur Razak, and he's been on hunger strike for a couple weeks. I was just notified two days ago. Something is wrong. I've known this brother for nearly 10 years, and he is not someone who engages anything like a hunger strike, unless something is extremely wrong. The name that keeps popping up is Lieutenant Javier Muro. The McConnell unit has recently been placed on what I believe is semi-annual lockdown, so we need some concerned citizens to call up here immediately and talk to Senior Warden Philip Sinfuentes in order to ascertain what the problem is. McConnell's phone number is 361-362-2300. I also suggest all of you contact the TDCJ Ombudsman as well as the TDCJ's CID division and request statements be obtained directly from Ferrari Gamble and myself in order to get a true grasp of the situation here. I always say that the best antiseptic for injustice is sunlight. TDCJ has been doing a lot of dirt in the dark for far too long. We need media exposure. Dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people. This week, we share the last story from the Voices of the Formerly Incarcerated panel that we've been airing over the past few episodes of KiteLine. And now, Wendell shares his experiences. My name is uh, Wendell. You probably won't believe this, but when I went to prison, my son, he was 10, he was only 10 months, 10 months old. When I got out of prison, my son was 31 years old, you know. And, you know, I just met my uh, granddaughter, you know, for the first time. I'm thinking I'm going to meet a little baby here, she, she's 12 years old, you know. I'm gonna go backwards, because I write a lot, and when I write, I always write my endings first, and then I, you know, work towards the end, uh, then I work, you know, towards the end. Okay, now where we at now, we know that we have, in just Pennsylvania alone, nearly 30 state prisons, nearly 30 state prisons, in, 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 in let's say, in Pennsylvania alone. Okay, well, why do, we have, why do we have so many prisons? Not because prisons cost money, because prisons make money. You know, uh, the prisoners that are, that are in these prisons, they are ex exploited a thousand and one ways. You know, everything that, everything that the prisoner owns in that cell, he has to buy there at the prison. You know, you used to be able to order radios, TVs, and shoes from outside the prison. You know, they stopped all that. Uh, there was a monopolization. You, you buy everything, you know, mm -hmm. right from there. Then the um, things that the prisoners can't get, they have, from commissary, they'll have a special cell, which they'll call, every, every, every month, well, let's see, 
three times a year, you can go, you know, and buy special items that they don't sell in commissary, you know? And these prices, the prices for those same items is like marked up like three times, you know, three times, you know, as, as much. And prisoners, you know, buy this stuff because it's something that they want because, you know, they, they, they don't normally don't sell it. Plus, you don't have any money in the prison, so what we use as money is cigarettes or food items, you know, you know, other items, you know. So, what what has to what has to come first is like the brother said, we have to stop them from monopolizing and, and, and making all this money from off all these poor people, you know. A lot of the prisoners that are in there, unfortunately, some of them there's not enough jobs for everybody, but those who do have jobs. You know, what do they do? They, they had nowhere else to spend their money, but they're in the prison. Uh, I remember when it cost me $5 to make a phone call, you know. It don't even cost that much out here in the street, you know, to make a phone call, you know. Uh, prisoners in there, they pay for cable. You know, me, I watched regular TV, you know. Uh, but the guards, they would, would make sure my cable was on because they, they want to occupy me. They don't want me in here reading. They don't want me in here writing, yeah. you know. Um, uh, when I went into prison, I went in there with a whole different mindset. I didn't go in there as I was going in there to, you know, serve time because I I committed a crime. You know, in fact, I in fact I served thirty years because I maintained my innocence the whole throughout the whole time. The parole board wouldn't let me go no matter what I did. When I got out of prison, I had had over seventy different certificates for different programs and groups and things that I completed. I got I got an associate's degree uh, for business management. I uh, took a culinary course and, and got certified in that. I mean, I had so many different certifications for, for different things because I said I was going to go in there, I was going to make the time serve me, I wasn't going to serve time. And while I was in there, yeah, I, uh, I had a few, you know, I got a few horror stories, but nothing like, you know, with, with these, you know, brothers, these soldiers here, you know, went through. You know, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, once I seen a couple guys, I was a tutor for like 10 years, and for a science teacher in, in, in school. And a fight broke out in the hallway. I saw this, this prison guard, I knew she was pregnant. She's running up the hall, and I know she's gonna try to break this fight up, you know? So I stepped in between the guys and broke it up because I didn't want her to get hurt or her baby here. And she said, what are you doing? Get out of here, because she knew I would've got locked up right along with these guys for, for breaking them up. So she let me spin off, and then she came back to me later and said, you know, why you do what you did? I said, well, because I knew you was going to try to break that fight up, and I didn't want you to get hurt. I didn't want your baby to get hurt. She actually quit, you know, because she didn't know that 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 that, that guys in there was, you know, thought like that, you know, that humane. Uh, another incident, a uh, little Spanish guy, he looked like he was about 16 years old, 15 to 16. Now, now I'm a little guy. He comes to me and say, hey, uh, hey, uh, old head. He said, um, I need your help. I said, well, what can I do for you? He says, uh, this, this, this guy in booty bands is trying to make me move in his cell. He want to rape me. Okay. So now, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans all over the jail. And like I've always heard Puerto Ricans stick together. So but I'm like, I'm saying to myself, why didn't he go to none of these guys? Or, you know. So anyway, um, I felt obligated to help him because he came to me. So uh, I went to, the, went to talk to the guy. I said, hey, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys in here that's into what you're into. You know, once you go mess with one of them guys, I said, Shorty, he's not in he's not into that, you know? So now I hear word that the guy is going around asking people for a knife so that he can stab me. Well he asked 
he asked the wrong person, he ended up getting stabbed. So, and that's and that's how how that happened. But uh, I was in the in the hole quite a few times. My first time in prison, they put me in a cell with a guy, and every day the guy threatened me, you know. And I just I you know I just brushed it off, didn't pay it any mind, you know. And but one day I realized that he was getting ready to carry out his threat. That he was real serious. The guy, he was a booty man. I knew he wanted to rape me, you know. But he was trying to instill fear in me first, and maybe he thought I was afraid. You know, but I know I didn't show it, and he probably thought I really was because he was getting his heart up, his heart up, his heart up. But anyway, when he did finally jump on me, they locked me up, put me in a hole. So now I'm in a hole for assault. Here, this guy, this, this guy here, he, he assaulted me. I'm in a hole for assault. While I'm back there, in the hole, is the guy back there. His name Cowboy. Uh, Cowboy was staunch white supremacy. Did not like black people. Well, Cowboy liked to smoke. So guys back there would sneak cigarettes back there so that they could buy food, buy trays, you know, off, 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 off other guys. Well, Cowboy, when he didn't have no cigarettes, he would go off. And he would start threatening the guards or the nurses, anybody that came back there. And one particular incident, they, they went in the cell, they pepper sprayed him, they beat him up. They probably went in this guy's cell maybe twice, two, three times a week. You know, this, that's how how bad he was always wilding out, you know. So they figured a way to calm him down was just give him cigarettes. Since I didn't smoke, they gave me cigarettes to issue out to him and other guys that was on the block. Of course, I took the job because I could buy uh, extra trays and, you know, desserts or whatever, <laughs> you know, from people. Well, uh, one of the guys shouted out the cowboy, said, because uh, cowboy, when he would run out of cigarettes, he would start crying. Says, see, well, I need you, man. And so somebody say, Cowboy, are you are you calling Seawell? And he said, Yeah. He said, uh, I thought you don't like black people. He said, No, I don't. But they said, uh, Well, Seawell, he's black. He said, No, he ain't. He's an Indian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so again, you know, Cowboy calling me again. See, well, I need you bad, man. I'm hurting over here, man. So I said, uh, what you need? Tell me what you need. So again, somebody else said, Cowboy, you talking to See Well again? Oh man, I thought you said you don't like black people. Oh, he's not black. He's a Mexican. This guy would call me everything but black. He said I was an Indian. He said I was Mexican. You know, oh, I mean, but uh, but getting getting back, you know, to what's really going on here. Here in America, we have over 300 million people here in the United States of America. And I would say as many as 70, 70 million people, you know, have convictions for one thing or another. Whether it's a felony or whether it's a misdemeanor, you know? And a lot of times, once someone develops a criminal record, you know, no matter how minute it is, it's hard for you to get employment or, you know, they do, uh, you know, even when you go, you know, to buy a house or you go to rent a house, uh, you know, just about for anything and everything, you know, you know, they do background checks for anything and everything, you know? Uh, me, myself, you know, when I came home, uh, I was dealing with a female. I met a female while I was in there, and we was corresponding for about five years. 
And when, she, when I first met her, she wanted to, she wanted to develop a relationship, and I told her no. I said I can't have a relationship under these circumstances, you know, because you out there, I'm here, I can't be thinking about you, you know, and worrying about what you're doing. I'm in here, you know what I mean? I gotta, you know, you know, keep myself together so I can get out of here. You know, my goal is to get out of here. Well, she contacted me because her son was in another prison and he was being extorted. And I don't know how she got my information, but someone told her that I could help her. And I just happened to know people in just about every prison, because like I said, I've been down you know, for so long. I know people in, in just about every prison. So I had a guy who was a friend of mine named Christopher Berry. And I said, hey, uh, there's a guy named um, Stephen Willis up there with you, man. And uh, he's just having some problems. I said, look, man, that's my son, man. I need you to um, look out for him. You know, take care of him, make sure, you know, nothing happened to him. So he did. Took the young guy, put him under his wing, and the guy didn't have no more problems, went home. He's doing good now. You know, he's doing fine. Well, again, you know, me and this female, we um, were, co were corresponding. And for, like I said, for a couple years, you know, I refused to, you know, develop a relationship, you know, with her. But we was corresponding for so long, you know. I said, okay, why not? Well, when the time came for me to come home, I was supposed to be going to stay with her. And that week, she just stopped answering my calls. So now, I don't, I don't have time enough to make other arrangements to go stay anywhere else. Because, you know, I wasn't in contact. I was, when I was in there, I did a lot of writing, but like for different organizations, you know, for myself, books. I wrote like 22 books, you know, since I, you know, while I was incarcerated. And so I lost contact. I used to call people, but really didn't know where anybody, you know, really lived at. So anyway, um, I didn't have uh, no place to go. So I called up a buddy of mine who happened to live in Pittsburgh. I'm from Philly. He said, look, man, if you really ain't got nowhere to go, come on out here. So I went out there and I went to stay with him. It only took me a week to find a job. It only took me a week to find my own place, you know. In fact, my pastor of my church where I'm at now, he just told me today. He said, look, man, I got a house down there in Keys Rocks. If you want it, I got keys for you right here. You can, you can have a place, you know. You know, my pastor just told me that today, you know. So, but anyway, getting back to this uh, prison industrial complex, what I really would like to see, because I know you all know some, may know someone that's, that's in prison, you know. And we have to really stop prisoners from getting exploited, you know, the, the way that they are. Because as long as they're making money off prisons and prisoners, it's going to continue. You know, it's going to, it's going, it's going, it's going to keep, it's going to keep going on. And uh, yes, uh, I was in uh, SMU in Camp Hill, and they used to have cell extractions there nearly every day. You know, you hear it on a loudspeaker. You know, uh, I was in Greene County. They had cell extractions there nearly every day. That means that they're going to someone's cell, they're pepper spraying them, they're beating them up, and you know, for whatever reason. When guys are in, in the hole and they don't have that contact, you know, the social contact, you know, um, a lot of times they start wilding out, you know? And the first, their first solution to that is to put them on some kind of psychotropic drugs to control them, you know? Uh, unfortunately, what that does is it makes a lot of times it makes the situation worse because now it, it drives these 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 guys towards suicide. You know, once they come down off this stuff, it's like them getting high and then crashing. You know, they need their fix. They ain't got their fix. You know, what else is left for them to do? You know, and that's one of the reasons why the suicide rate you know in Pennsylvania is so high. A lot of guys they put in the hole don't really even need psychotropic drugs. You know, but that's the first thing that they 
that they give to you, you know, to desensitize a person and to to limit your contact with with other people. Uh, just like you have a chessboard and you're playing with someone. Before you can capture a piece, you must first isolate it, you know, or you're going to have to give something up, you know. So this is this is what the isolation is all about: is to cut you off, you know, from the outside world. Now you belong to us, you know. We feed you. We tell you what time to get up, what time to go to sleep, what time you can, you know, take a shower, uh, things things of this nature. Well, I'm sure that you have seen how prisons are ran in other countries. You know, they're way more humane. You know, when people get out, they got a second chance. They can, you know, go work wherever they want to work. They can go live wherever they want to live. You know, but uh, here, us here, you know, in in the United States of America, once you're in prison and, you know, it's like you never get out. I was released from Somerset Prison. And why is that um, important? Well, it is important to me for this one reason. Uh, Somerset, Pennsylvania, and England, and like in 1768 or some somewhere around there, there was a young African guy, young African male man who was captured from Africa and he was took there to England, and he petitioned. He took his slave master to court. So he took him to court and petitioned for his freedom, and he won. Well, Lord Mansfield did not just free this one slave who they named Somerset, they freed all of their slaves. And one of the main reasons for, you know, the uh, Revolutionary War is because when the United States, our 13 colonies, they were, they were subjects of the crown. And they knew that when Britain freed their slaves, that, then they, that it was going to mean they was going to have to free theirs over here too. They didn't want to. So this is when all these other stories come up about taxation without representation and the Boston Tea Party and, and everything else, you know. It's a real history buff, and you study history, you'll come to find out that a lot that you learn about our history, you know, isn't true. Yeah. You know, everybody heard history is his story. Okay, well, mystery is my story. Why must my story be a mystery? You know, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, go into, you know, the, the, the whole history of, you know, the slave trade and where we are now. What I, again, like I said, what I like to really focus on is, is thinking of, of ways and avenues that we can change the system. And the only way, only way you really can change the system is to start shutting them down, you know? And the only way, to, and the only way you can shut them down is deny them bodies, you know? And that's why like, I got, like, a lot of the young men in, in my community and, and in my family, you know, I tell them, you don't want, ever want to go to jail. Don't never give no one the opportunity to take your freedom from you, you know. And you know, and and they and they listen to that. You know, they they all doing you know very well. Um, as you know, uh, illiteracy you know leads to poverty. Well, illiteracy illiteracy leads to unemployment. Unemployment leads to poverty. You know, and I noticed that a lot of the young guys that were there in prison with me. A lot of them didn't have no real male role models, you know, in their families, you know. A lot of them, you know, came from single, you know, parent homes, you know, where, where their mothers raised them. And unfortunately, when a lot of young guys go into prison for the very first time, they get, they get recruited by, you know, gangs, you know, uh, this, that, and the other thing. Where I was at, a lot of the young guys that were going in, the only thing they, that they was thinking about was getting high, smoking this K2 stuff. You know, and 
you know, you, you smoke that stuff and, you know, it's like taking acid. You go on a trip, you know. And, you know, I don't smoke, drink, or, you know, use drugs, you know. Uh, that's just the way I was raised, you know. I was taught that, you know, anything bad for you, you know it's bad for you, you stay away from it, you know. Uh, I just came, came, I just took a trip to Philly to meet a lot of my family members that I haven't seen, you know, in, in so many years. And some of my family members came from all over. You know, um, you know, just to see me, which made me happy. And but I, but I, and in the, but in the back of my mind, I was like, where were all these people? You know, when I was away, didn't know nobody think about me then. You know, because you know, while I was in there, I always kept a job, always you know, you know, took care of myself. You know, and again, like I said, I, I looked at it as 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 school, as that that was my university. You know, place for my for my for my and development. You know, you you have you have to have a, a, a tomb which is a place of death, decay, and loss, which some people view it as, you know. But uh, again, it, it's, it's all in your mindset. But right now, you know, the prison thing is, 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 real, is real psychological. You know, it's not just, you know, with the shackles on your feet and everything. Some of the guys who I work with, I, I asked them, because they would always, be, I would look at them, and they'd all be standing with their hands behind their backs, like this. So I went and said, hey, excuse me, uh, how long have you been out of prison? Every last one of them, and I said, I said you know, had, had, had served time in prison. So I said, uh, you know, I, I just, it didn't really hit me until I seen so many of y'all guys standing over here and all y'all had your hands behind your back that, you know, that, you know, I just said something had to be wrong with that because, you know, none of y'all got your army uniforms on, you know, you're not in, at, at, at ease. So I, so I looked at that, you know, analyzing the situation. And, and yes, every last one of them, you know, was in there and they, it's like, wow, man, you know, I didn't really um, look at it like that, but this is just, you know, a comfortable position for me, you know, how you know how I stand. So a lot of times, any time when people done do serve so much time, they come out and, you know, and, and, and they have, you know, baggage, you know, this, that, and the next thing. Me, I didn't have time to really think about that because, like I said, I had to find a job, I had to find a place to stay, and I've been working ever since, you know, and, and I've been I've been working like 10 hours nearly every day. You know, so when I get when I get in, I I sleep and I, I get up and ready, getting ready for the for the next day. You know, and I I told my boss that the only day I won't work is Sundays. That's just so I can you know go to church, I can do my laundry, things of that nature. Again, what I would like to see you know come out of out of this here is like again anybody who has who knows someone that's in prison, you know, reach out to them, you know, and and. And, and, and ask them how many ways do the prison make money off of them, and ask them how do they contribute, you know, to their growth and development, you know, because you know what we need to do is we need to stop them from being able to make money off the prisoners. You know, of course, you know, guy in a cell, nothing else to do. You want to watch TV, if you know you can't you can't watch TV unless you got cable, because if you don't have cable, you only want to get two or three channels. You know, it's just like you're not having a TV at all. You know, me, the only thing I cared about when I was in it really was watching the news. You know, and I, in the morning when I got up, in the afternoon, and then in, 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 in the evening. You know, I really didn't really have time, you know, uh, to watch TV, you know, because I was always reading or I was always writing.
This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Or you can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes by searching for KiteLine Radio. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.